welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 118, the Henry Kaiser album, Devil in the Drain. It's a strange record, and it's uh, it's strange times, Brent, so it's actually a pretty good record for, uh, <laughs> for these days, if you ask me. Yeah. Uh, and we've got a special guest, Brent. Yeah, Henry Kaiser's on the show. Yeah, great interview. Um, the dude has lived an incredible life and uh, even just some glimpses into some stories around this record and the stuff that Henry's into to this day is just uh, a mind blower and a great interview. It was honestly one of the most difficult ones I've had to do. The guy has had such a varied and interesting discography. It was daunting. I didn't even know where to start. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you, man. But I think we got some good stuff uh, on this record. Oh, yeah, for sure. As usual, there's not that much out there, and we're very grateful to have Henry on and to give us some uh, some spiels. Yeah. Speaking of spiels, can I uh, can I hit you with a couple? Please do. All right. I'm still I'm sneaking in my spiels since you 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 scooped me so scrupulously <laughs> last episode. So I got to get in a couple here. My first one is. A documentary themed spiel oh you might be scooping me because i have a documentary themed spiel too yes <laughs> i am the spiel scooper this time <laughs> hey uh well i just want to mention a couple and one's got like a remote tie-in to this episode in fact if you you probably have already watched this brent but there's a wicked zz top documentary on netflix now that's one spiel scooped yes you got to check out that documentary uh, called That Little Old Band from Texas. It's great. Uh, we spoke about ZZ Top a while back, Brant, when we were talking about Buzz Osborne's top tens of yes. all time. And he mentions Tres Hombres on there. There's uh, some good bits in that documentary about Rocky Erickson, the punk influence on ZZ Top, yep. and, some, and some great tunes. So there's... There's a great documentary out there to check out. I've I've watched it a couple of times already. I have, I have tickets to see them with Cheap Trick. I'm really hoping it doesn't get coronavirus. Oh yeah, no doubt. Well, you know you know the thing about that documentary that I had here that is worth a mention is it's made by Sam Dunn and Scott McFadden of Banger Productions, who have a couple oh, yeah. Canadian guys who have really perfected the whole band documentary thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, they've done. The Iron Maiden one, the Rush one, all of those History of Metal ones, they're all worthwhile checking out. Here's my question, Ryan, that I was going to ask you. Okay. If Banger Productions, if you could have them make a documentary on any band, which band would you pick? No means no, 100%. That's that's what I had. Either, yeah. them, either them or Jane's Addiction. I'd love to see a documentary on them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, they would probably pick Jane's Addiction because, you know, they could recoup their money yeah <laughs> <laughs> not with the no beats no one yeah uh, hey here's my second documentary i've got four to mention there is um also out on netflix with this easy top one a great a really great miles davis documentary birth of the cool you scooped my second documentary spiel oh yeah just wait <laughs> just wait um uh, obviously miles is a massive innovator i'm a i've been a huge fan forever a really troubled story but amazing story and it actually follows his book pretty closely, but there's there's some really good interviews 
in it as well and it's it's really causing me to go back and me too yeah dive deeply into all those very different and amazing eras of miles davis the third one i wanted to mention it follows his book because he narrates it although it's not him talking it's somebody somebody um standing in for him and using quotes from his book exactly it's got a and it kind of sounds like mile with that raspy voice i kind of thought they breezed through the electric period though yeah i i mean i guess so only because still like the period of the 40s to the 60s or whatever is that's that's the part that he's most remembered for the 70s is hugely influential i they could do a whole documentary on how influential the 70s music was on uh, hip-hop and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. They could do a deep dive there. Uh, the other one I want to mention, though, that's related to the Miles doc. It's been out for a while, but it caused me to re-watch it again, is that Chasing Train documentary on John Coltrane. That one's really good. I've watched it multiple times, and I watched it again after the Miles one, and what an insane bunch of guys there that put out some crazy music that is still amazing to listen to to this day here's my fourth documentary though and there's a very remote henry kaiser tie-in and i think i mentioned this one way way back probably like a hundred episodes ago but i think his name has come up a couple of times on the podcast and his name is raymond scott he's a a very uh revolutionary composer and uh, electronics musician innovator and he started off and you know doing kind of like radio spots jingles jazz stuff in the 30s you've mentioned this guy for sure yeah yeah all of his stuff was copped in looney tunes uh, cartoons and and still is copped to this day you've talked about this guy in a zoogs episode i believe probably yeah here's the thing though Uh, i mentioned so the documentary on Raymond Scott called Deconstructing Dad, people should check that out. It's really, really good. Dad? It's got Deconstructing Dad. Okay. Deconstructing Dad. It's really, really good. It's got, you know, Devo. It's got Zappa in, uh, references. It's got all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. He's really ended up being a, a huge pioneer of electronic music, like back in the 50s. Is this on Netflix? I don't think so i bought i actually bought the dvd before there were like (laughs) blu-rays i think but raymond scott created a bunch of instruments that would have been the predecessor to the synclavier in fact like the clavivox or the electronium or the polyphonic sequencer and uh hung out with bob moog and all those dudes in the 60s and 70s, I don't think there would be a Synclavier without Raymond Scott. So I know it's kind of a remote tie into Henry Kaiser, but I, I had to throw it in there since I was on a documentary spiel. Do you have another documentary to throw in before I go to my second spiel? I do not. Okay, here's my second spiel, Brent. It's called Obsessed with the Obsessed. <laughs> do tell. <laughs> So you gave me an assignment last week. What was it again? <laughs> to listen to a very specific song by The Obsessed. I don't remember which one. Forever Midnight? Yes. Yeah. So you were right. 
I really like that tune. Yes. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I was like, whoa. I was hooked in the first 30 seconds. Yeah. So I'm going to check out that first record for sure. But you mentioned last week there's some sort of collection that's coming out on Record Store Day, but it's like a re-release of a collection. So I really what I want on this spiel on Obsessed with the Obsessed, I want you to tell me what should I listen to next after the first record? Uh, the albums The Church Within and Lunar Womb. That's where you want to go next. Okay, not to the, one of those collections, just go to the records? Go to those. Okay. Yep. I'm done. My my note here was, now what? And now I know. <laughs> Glad you like them, man. They're not really a doom metal band. They're more like a 70s riffy rock band. Yeah. No, I liked it a lot. And I can totally tell why you thought I would like it and the reference to Soundgarden. Totally got it all. Right on. You're good then? My turn? Yeah, go for it. A few weeks back, I introduced a new segment called Podcast Shoutout. I have one. For listeners of this podcast, you'd probably have to be living under a rock to not have heard of the podcast Turned Out a Punk, uh, hosted by Damien from Fucked Up. He's had many amazing guests on there. Uh, most recently, he had Kid Congo Powers on, which was really good. He's had John Worster on, Billy Duffy from The Cult. Milo's been on there. Lots of SST people. Uh, Sean and Mark Stern, Thurston Moore. Uh, Jerry A. from Poison Idea was actually a really good one. Thomas Anselmi from uh, the band Slow was a really good one, a Canadian band. But he recently had on Mike Watt, and they talk about a lot of SST stuff on there, and Watt even gives a Nils shout-out. No way. Way. Nice. Nice. So check that out. Uh, And Ryan, I'm introducing a new segment. And do you remember when I tried to introduce a segment and you shot me down? What was your segment that I shot down? Hey, Brant, what you listening to? No, I didn't shut, shoot that down. You never revisited that. No, you were like, uh, let's not do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, but, but, hey, but hey, no, let's hear your next new segment. Okay. Do tell. Well, uh, I'm going to do some post-production on this too. I'm going to add in an echo effect on this. I'm going to try anyways. If you listen to this and there's no echo effect, then it didn't work. But my new segment is going to be called The Comp Zone. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was listening to the compilation uh, Sub Pop 200 the other day. and. It's a really good one. Lots of early sub-pop bands covering kind of 86 to 88, that time frame. Tad, The Fluid, The Fastbacks doing a Green River cover, Screaming Trees doing Hendrix, Uh, Girl Trouble, Cat Butt, Soundgarden doing that really cool song, Sub-Pop Rock City, Uh, an exclusive Mudhoney track, Spank Through, which I believe has been called the very first Nirvana song. Some great stuff from Blood Circus, Green River, Steve Fisk, an SST connection, uh, The Throne Ups, Swallow. Time to give that one a revisit. So remind me, what's the name of the the segment is? The Comp Zone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, hey, since you mentioned comps, can I mention a comp that I, I, I noticed? So it's called Really Bad Music for Really Bad People. 
It's a tribute to the Cramps. Okay. And but it's but it's noise rock bands on it. Huh. It's got Child Bite doing TV set. Oh well. It's got uh, Zeus featuring Mike Patton doing Human Fly. It's got Daughters doing What's Inside a Girl. Qui doing New Kind of Kick. Um, this one I think is going to be good. The the track Human Fly Zeus featuring Mike Patton is out, and I checked it out. It was good. That looks like a good comp. No kidding. Who's putting that out? Looks like it's, I think it's 3-1-G. Cool. Yeah, 3-1-G. Uh, should we get into the devil in the drain? Let's do it. History lesson, part one. All right, Brant, devil in the drain, Henry Kaiser. I can think of no better way to start off this episode with some words from the spaceman. Shall I? You shall. So people may recall... Episode 102 was the No Age comp, and it had our one of our first tastes of Henry Kaiser. He's There's a Frith and Kaiser track on there, but also one of the tracks that's on here. And the Spaceman laid down a spiel for all the artists on there, and here is the one on Henry Kaiser. Here we go. The amount of different types and styles of music present in the world is extraordinary. Just in America alone, the stylistic diversions between regional musics can account for over 200 techniques and their resultant disciplines. When you attempt to figure in the rest of the musics found around the world, the figure is staggering. Henry Kaiser seems intent on becoming a master of all of them. By and far the most prolific and versatile musician on SST, Henry has appeared on over 70 albums, using anything ranging from free improvisation to blistering blues to avant classical to Korean senwa music to just about any other style you can think of. On Sugi, Sugagaki for Conlon, Henry is found composing on the Synclavier, the most advanced digital computer available. The song is from Henry's album, Devil in the Drain. Yes, so I think the number they use there is 70-something. It's over 300 now for yeah. releases he's appeared on. And he's very prolific on SST, too. We've seen him on 077, The Island of Living Puke, the Zoog's Rift album. Uh, 102, the No Age comp you just mentioned. 110, Crazy Backwards Alphabet. And then we're going to see him a number of times Next up will be 133, Negative Land, Escape from Noise. Uh, he's also on 147 with Fred Frith, with enemies like these who needs friends. He's on the Scott Colby Slide of Hand album. He's on the Fred Frith, The Technology of Tears album. He's on 182, the Everett Shock Ghost Boys album. 198, the Henry Kaiser album, Those Who Know History Are Doomed to Repeat It. One, uh, and then... 222 remarrying for money and that's just what i could find easily uh who knows where else he might pop up i wouldn't be surprised if we see him a few more times yeah unannounced <laughs> yeah here's what i found on the cuneiform records website grammy winner henry kaiser is widely recognized as one of the most creative and innovative guitarists improvisers and producers in the fields of rock jazz world and contemporary experimental musics the California-based musician is one of the most extensively recorded as well. 
Kaiser produces and cr- contributes to a staggering number of recorded projects, and he performs frequently throughout the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Japan, both in group configurations as a soloist and in ad hoc concerts of freely improvised music with a host of diverse instrumentalists. But here's another interesting thing. This is from an article on premierguitar.com. This is something we don't really talk about in the interview, but it's a cool facet of his life that uh, I wanted to get on the record. Uh, So they're talking about his guitar influences like Derek Bailey and Richard Thompson, but then they go, but the actor Lloyd Bridges cast an equally important spell over Kaiser. Decades before he played drug-addled air traffic controller Steve McCroskey in Airplane, Bridges was the scuba, scuba diving hero of the TV adventure Sea Hunt. Since it was impossible to film dialogue during the sh- weekly show's underwater sequences, Bridges' character, Mike Nelson, provided voice-over narration that often explained aspects of diving in detail. Kaiser, who was six years old when the show debuted in 1958, was hooked and donned his first scuba suit when he was 11, nine years before scoring his initial guitar. So, parallel to his adventurous music-making, Kaiser has pursued a career as a scientific diver. He spent 17 years teaching research diving at the University of California, Berkeley, and since 2001 he has been deployed repeatedly as a research diver in Antarctica. Yeah. Super interesting. How old is he? He's going to be 70 or around 70, and he just won't stop, which is awesome. Yeah, he says he says his age in the interview. I think he's a couple years out from 70 yet, but yeah, he's a go-getter, man. You want to talk about, you know, that black flag work ethic. He has it for sure. Yeah, I loved it. Well, maybe we should throw it to the interview. And uh, before I start riffing on all the cool stuff he spiels about. Yeah, let's do that. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Henry Kaiser. Henry, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Everything's really good. Good. Had a good gig yesterday and go back to work mixing some stuff right now after Uh-oh. this. Right on. Well, we'll get to that in a bit. I'm, I do want to know what you've been up to lately. But for now, I'm wondering if you can take us back to kind of the start of your musical career. I know you started playing guitar very late, relatively speaking. I- I started when I was 20 in 1971, technically. Okay. And I think I made my first album, which is one with Eugene Chadbourne in 1976. And then some people in the Bay Area and I, Larry Oakes and Greg Goodman, started the Metal Language label, and we put out a bunch of things on that label. And I was on other improvised music labels and, and okay. so on and so forth. And then the late 80s... Uh, Suddenly, I was asked to do a record for SST label. I try to remember how that happened. Did that because Ray Farrell, who worked for SST, used to work at Rather Ripped Records in Berkeley, and I had known him there, and he'd recommended it to Greg in, or did Greg know about me on his own? I have no memory. Well, we have seen you on the podcast a few times. You played on the Zoog's Rift album, The Island of Living Puke, so there's an SST connection going back a little ways there. What, so what, is that the first SST record I'm on? I believe so, yeah. What year is that? Uh, probably around 85, maybe? 85. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. So it could have been something to do with that, too. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah. And then we saw, we saw you a couple weeks ago on the Crazy Backwards Alphabet record. Yes, one of my favorite records. I love that album. 
You were mentioning uh, your old friend Bob Adams. Tell me a bit about Bob. Well, Bob Adams is a guy who grew up in Garden Grove and could go to Disneyland on an annual pass as much as he wanted, and it greatly affected his mind. And then when he started to play guitar, he was became a really unique guitar player who didn't have really a lot of influences from other guitarists. And I was in a band with him called Name about the time of the Crazy Backwards Alphabet and just before Crazy Backwards Alphabet, and he's was a great composer for guitar. Okay. He's on the second Crazy Backwards Alphabet album, which was a, a iTunes-only release that never was on SST. Right. Garden Grove, is that where you grew up? Nope, I grew up in Oakland. Oh. He went, I think he went to college at UC Berkeley, and I met him in the late 70s in UC Berkeley. Okay. Area. So when you did start playing, who were some of your influences? I, I know, you know, you've talked about Captain Beefheart a lot, and... Well, the influences on me are the guitar. The guitar influences on me are number one, Derek Bailey, a British free improvising guitarist. Number two, the guitarist in Captain Beefheart's band. Number three, free jazz great player Sonny Chirac. Right. Um, but you know, there's there's dozens and dozens and dozens of influences on me to start out with. Yeah. So did you know right when you started playing, you wanted to do? you know, go off in more of an avant-garde direction? I do exactly today what I want to do the first day I got a guitar. I do exactly that. So I've done exactly the same thing all along. And in fact, there's a weird story about that. Somebody was interviewing me a few years ago, and they said, so when you brought your first guitar, what did you do? I said, well, I took it back to my dorm room, and I put a slide on my finger and just tried to make sounds along with various different records. And they said, oh, what records were they? And I said, well, let's see. There was a Captain Beefheart Mirror Man, and there was Grateful Dead Live Dead, and um, there was a put on Pharaoh Sanders' Towhid record, and uh, I put on a record called Valiha Madagascar from 1964, Valiha music from Madagascar. He said, oh, that's funny. You've played with most of those people. I said, huh. You know, it's weird you should say that. I never thought of it, but I played with Sonny Chirac, who's on that record. I played with Drumbo, who's on the Captain Beefheart record. I played with everybody in The Grateful Dead at one time or another. Wow. And he said, oh, but you didn't play with anybody in that Madagascar record, did you? And I was like, I don't think so, no. They said, what record what did you play with? And I said, well, I remember I put on the last cut, which was... And then I got chills over my whole body because I realized that 20... Two years later, after that first day with the guitar, David Lindley and I were in Madagascar making an album there, and I played that tune with that guy. Oh, wow. So I played with every... And I've also put on a Derek Bailey record, Topography of the Lungs. I forgot that, Topography of the Lungs, Derek Bailey, Evan Parker had that. I can play it along with that. So pretty much I played with everybody on those records. Wow. Weird. <laughs> first day, weird, without trying to. No kidding. It's weird. It's weird. <laughs> and, I, and I've had a habit of going up to heroes of mine, whether it's Richard Thompson or David Lindley or Jerry Garcia, and saying, hey, come on, let's do something. Let's do this. And they're like, okay. And, and a lot of those people are improvisers as well, like yourself. A lot, yes, there's tons and tons of improv. I played, you know, Cecil Taylor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, people who are big heroes of mine before I played guitar, I ended up getting to do things with. 
Yeah. What about the influence of world music? Well, in particular, world music, I'm a lot of, very influenced by Hindustani classical music because the first music theory I learned before Western uh, theory was Hindustani theory. And then I particularly influenced by music from Korea and Madagascar and some Scandinavian, Norwegian roots musics and some kinds of African popular musics. So those things all, all creep in as influences in 20th century classical music. My main guys are Conlon Nancaro and Toru Takimitsu and Terry Riley and Stockhausen and Yana Sinakis and Giacinto Chelsea. So all those guys are kind of there under my guitar fingers when I play. Now, a lot of these guitar players you've you've played with and some of the ones you've mentioned, you know, in the 80s, we're getting into the era of guitar player magazine and, and stuff like that. Do you ever feel like you didn't get your due in mainstream no, I publications? Of, I got way more coverage in mainstream publications in the late 70s and early 80s than yeah. I do now. Yeah. Way more. You know, I was invited. They quickly put me on. At the time, my second record, they put me on the advisory board of guitar player. Yeah. And I was doing major cover story interviews with people and getting covered there myself and getting covered in the other magazines. So there used to be a wider bandwidth in what got covered in guitar media than there is today. And I think that's a, that's kind of a sad change, just like there used to be a wider bandwidth of what get play, gets played on the radio yeah. than what gets played today. Yeah, that's a good good point to make that comparison. But I mean, historically now we've we've kind of, everybody knows who their shredders are that they talk about or these blues people, but it, you know, I think it's a shame that I don't see your name mentioned. I mean, you can shred with the best of them too. And it, you know, it just depends. It just depends on who you're listening to, whether they're going to mention me or not. But you know, the most mainstream people are never going to mention me. You know, I'm curious about some of the SST related folks that you've you've played with. Mark Hosler plays on the record. Mark, Mark Hosler was in Negative Land. Yeah. Uh, he did some. He's on the Devil in the Drain record on SST as a editor who helped me do a track that I wanted to do with vocal and guitar that we had to do live. And um, I believe I'm on a Negative Land record, and I played live a number of times with Negative Land in the ancient days. Yeah. You've played with Mike Watt recently as well. I played with Mike Watt quite recently. We have a project called A Love Supreme Electric, where we play John Coltrane's A Love Supreme in Meditations, and that's going to come out in September on Cuneiform label. Looking forward to that. And I just uh, opened for Mike Watt uh, at a gig up here, and he's a wonderful, amazing person. Cool. This record you just mentioned, is it a live album? Uh, nope, it's a studio record. Oh, cool. Studio record, one CD of A Love Supreme and one CD of Coltrane's Meditations, the two suites that John Coltrane released, and it's Vinnie Golia on saxophone, Wayne Pete on organ, John Hanrahan on drums, me on guitar, Mike Watt on bass. And I think we'll be doing that some more. Right on. It comes out. Uh, Scott Colby, I believe you played with this weekend that we're talking. Uh, I just played with Scott Colby last night, who's on SST and has a really great album called Slide of Hand on SST. And he's sitting in the other room talking to the um, Swedish slide guitarist, um, 
Jimmy Ogren right now. We had a, we had a gig here in Santa Cruz last night that was really cool. Or yesterday afternoon, technically, matinee. Really okay. cool gig. Really cool. Uh, we just oh. talked about Crazy Backwards Alphabet. Andy West and a, you and some other guys released an amazing album last year called Five Times Surprise. Right, and we just made a new album with a diff, different group this year, Andy and I did, which at the end of, we recorded the end of last year, which we're just mixing now, which is Stefan Phelan from the group Sonar from Switzerland, and Chris Muir, old colleague of mine on guitar, Lucas Leggetti, the son of the composer Georgi Leggetti on drums, and me and Andy West. Right on. Andy and I are about to do a project. We're both big fans of the late science fiction author Gene Wolfe. Okay. And we were going to do an album and do pick our favorite short stories of his and do soundtracks to the short stories where we try to do the narrative of the stories with music. Oh, that's an interesting idea. So I'm looking forward to that. Glenn Phillips. Glenn Phillips was also on SST at my suggestion, I think. Um, Glenn Phillips is an Atlanta, Georgia guitarist who is in the Hampton Grease Band, a very famous 2LP set on Columbia Records which launched Colonel Bruce Hampton. And then he continued with his first self-released album, Lost at Sea, and released quite a few albums of his own. Does he have one or two on SST? Just one, Elevator. Just one. He has Elevator on SST, and then Glenn's a dear friend, and he continues to do that music to this day. And he was on my SST album, Those Who Know History Are Doomed to Repeat It, where we did a cover with Bill Frizzell's band together with us of uh, Grateful Dead's Dark Star. Right. Uh, A funny story about that. Originally, was going to do that with Frizzell on guitar. And Frizzell's management says, you can have nothing to do with the Grateful Dead. It'll ruin your career if you have anything to do with the Grateful Dead in any way whatsoever. Um, and so that's so we just swapped out Glenn. And then the funny thing is you find Frizzell, you know, decades later playing with, with Phil Lesh doing Grateful Dead songs. I that, was, <laughs> that, that was music. <laughs> uh, Fred Frith. Fred Frith, I've known for years. I did a part of a tour with Henry Cow in France as the guitarist with Fred playing bass a million years ago. We, you know, I got his records. I enjoyed them, and I met him when I went to England, and they, they dragged me to France playing with him. Oh, wow. Uh, when would that and, have been? Uh, 77, 78. I could look it up in the wow. Henry Cow book. I don't remember. Yeah. Have you read that? You're talking about the new Henry Cow book that just came out? Yes, I have it, but I haven't read it. Um, and um, so Fred Frith, we had a couple of duo records on metal language that are later reissued in different forms, so, um, and the, I enjoy those a lot. And Fred and I have con- continued to work together for years. We had an album called Unexpected Twins that came out last year, right. where we revisited the music I used to do in a group with Bruce Ackley, John Zorn, Eugene Chadborn, and Bruce and I, we knew we could never get the other guys together. So we got uh, Aram Shelton on saxophone and Fred on guitar and did that. And Eugene and I had a duo record also come out on the same label as that last year where we did composition acoustic guitar pieces by our friend Wadada Leo Smith, who we've both known for more than 40 years and worked with for all, all that time. You mentioned the band name that you were in, Everett Shock. Is another Everett SST. Shock was, was, there's an Everett Shock album called Ghost Boys on SST, and it's really just a name album. We just kind of did that to 
he would be the reluctant front person, so we put his name on it just to sort of torment him. <laughs> um, but, but it was a group that played a lot in the Bay Area, uh, sometimes three guitars, keyboards, bass and drums, sometimes four guitars, and it was all composed music, no improvisation, written by different people in the group. Never came close yeah, to do, doing anything with Greg Ginn? No, uh, you know, I remember I played one gig with Greg Ginn at the Keystone San Francisco, but the memory of it is dim. It was some kind of SST showcase. I remember Joe Beisel was playing too. Oh, wow. But it just, I just barely remember it. Hmm. Talking about this album, Devil in the Drain, how do you pronounce the name of the primary instrument you play on this? Is it Synclavier? It's Synclavier, yeah. is how they would pronounce it. So at that time, I was making my living doing low-budget TV show soundtracks. Okay. And I was working um, for a show called Secrets and Mysteries, which oddly was kind of the same show as a show that I used to be a TV director on called uh, uh, In Search Of, years oh. before. Okay. And I, they, they'd send me uh, a video cassette of the show, and it would get there by FedEx one day, and I would have to have it done overnight, the music, the next day. So I ended up finally getting the Synclavier kind of computer music system to, so I could be very, very productive and uh, do this work. And in fact, it paid for my house and it paid for the <laughs> computer music system. It paid for, it was incredibly lucrative because they accidentally gave me 100% of the publishing oh. for the music for it. And it was something that was on cable stations forever. Uh, so it was always, I was getting big checks from that, and it was a great deal. So anyway, a couple of pieces for On Devil in the Drain are just cues that I'd done for TV shows. Oh, and they that. actually got used on the show, or just they were leftovers? They, they were used on the show, and then I would take them, and, and I stuck my two, I think my two favorite cues from the show, um, One particularly the one called Free to Choose, which is my favorite cue, um, which continues to get used in science documentaries in all kinds of places. Wow. Um, that's, that, that was something from a TV show about Pearl Harbor. <laughs> um, and then we just, then using, I did some more creative kind of Sinclair backgrounds and would play live guitar with them, which is what a lot of the other tracks are. And I think there's a solo guitar track. There is, And yeah. there's a track where I, read, I recite the text dramatically of a children's book by Daniel Pinkwater called Devil in the Drain and accompany myself in guitar much in the same way that Derek Bailey would accompany himself on talking pieces except that I was doing a, a dramatic thing with uh, doing the talking right. and playing guitar at the same time. And you, I you did that live? I, it's, li it's live yeah. and I had to switch in a harmonizer to do the devil's voice to lower my pitch and I had Mark Hostler come over to push the button when I had to change to the devil's voice, so that's actually that's actually what he did there. Wow! And then he he helped with it, and there was ta some tape editing, and we were both good tape editors. But it says edited by, so he must have done some editing on that. Hmm. Did you ever perform that live? I performed it many times live. I had it memorized, could do it easily live. I haven't done it for quite a while. Uh, I believe the only other person who plays on this is Bruce Anderson. Bruce Anderson, um, who I was soon to be in the Henry Kaiser band with, a great guitarist from MXAE Sound, yep. uh, an amazing group. We've, we played together quite a lot, so I asked Bruce to play on a, on a track. Cause I, just, I love his guitar playing. He's still an amazing guitar player.
Now, how does this computer music system work? Do you sample sounds into it? There's samples, there's digital synthesis, and like a multi-track recorder, you know, you could play one track of sound, then play another track of sound. This is before there were, were, were digital you know, audio recording systems that were, that were on a computer hard disk, and this was going right into floppy disks. I believe Zappa was, was using the... Zappa had one at the same time, and we were friends, and he was kind that gave me quite a few really nice samples. So some of the samples on this were ones that Zappa had recorded for his own use, and he kindly, very, very kindly given to me. Oh, wow. And then, you know, and then, and there weren't a lot of users of this thing, and so you didn't have a lot of other people to talk about, so it was helpful for us to have each other to talk to about it, and there were other users that uh, were there. I could tell a funny story. You want a funny story? Absolutely. The funny Sinclair story. So it's this computer music system, and they were trying to sell it, and um, I remember they had some kind of public presentation at one time that I went to where I was going to talk in one part of it. And then they had their big special presentation of fusion guitarist Al DiMiola, who was going to get up and tell how he'd used the Sinclair extensively on his new record and why the many, there was like 150 people in the audience, why they should buy one. And I'm going to translate what Al DiMiola said into more simple English. Okay. okay all right. So Al Dimiel comes and says, yes, I am the master of the Sinclair. The Sinclair allows me to have the biggest penis on the planet. That's right. <laughs> it's me. The largest penis on the planet. No penis can compete with me because of my great knowledge of the Sinclair. I'm the penis master of the Sinclair, in fact. Um, my large penis and I, we totally control the Sinclair. We totally understand it. You know, we could create this amazing penis music with it because I have the largest penis in the world, the biggest one. <laughs> and me and the Sinclair together, we rule the universe, the penis and I. And so he kind of goes on like that for about 20 minutes. And that's basically what he's saying. And then he's at the front of the stage next to the Sinclair, and the, the technicians from the Sinclair company and the president are on the side of the stage, and they're nodding their heads. And... Uh, he goes on a little more about, I've really mastered the Sinclair, because I have the largest penis already, but it got even bigger with the Sinclair. Uh, and I'm the true master of it. And uh, he says, now, now I'll, I'll play you a piece that I composed with the Sinclair. And he stops and he says, um, he looks over the side stage to one of the engineer guys and says, Jim, could you uh, start the piece for me? And uh, the engineer says, but, but it. Alan, you're right by the machine. Just push play. And he's lost. He has no idea how to operate it. It's, he doesn't know how to do the most simple thing, how to push a button that says play that's on the front. He has no idea. He's been bullshitting everybody, and it's instantly obvious to everybody in the room. And they start laughing at him, and he storms out. It was so funny. That's, that's my funny Sinclair story. That's my best Sinclair story. But many people were very kind. You know, Zappa was very kind to me. Um, and you'd go over to Zappa's house, and he would play amazing stuff for you that he'd done on the Sinclair. And he, he, he liked to play stuff for people. My friend, my friend Matt Groening, before he was a big success with The Simpsons, had this experience, too. You go over, and Zappa will spend two or three hours playing things for you that he's done that he thinks are cool. And I remember some of this stuff he played for me. He played for me a piano concerto he'd done on the Sinclair. Incredible. One of the best, you know, so-called classical pieces of his I've ever heard. 
and they've never released it. He had all this great Sinclair stuff. You know, we don't see it. Yeah. I hope they put it out someday. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Well, they still keep pumping stuff out from the Zappa family. They process. do. They do, and I know of many, many, many things that they have that they could put out that they don't put out, and it's a mystery. Yeah. Nothing with you? Uh, no, 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 no. We never did anything together. No, just friends. Just friends. Did you continue to play it after this record? Um, I kept using it until I couldn't make that kind of work went away, and then it was kind of mothballed, and then I donated it to a charity for a tax deduction and said goodbye to it, so it's been gone for for ages. And, and pretty much you could do all that stuff just with a Mac and, um, you know, a digital audio workstation right. software nowadays, pretty much. Yeah, you, can do, you could do it all with Apple Logic, pretty much. You're known for being a gear guy. Mm-hmm. Do you hang on to it, or do you often get, you know, get rid of stuff? You know, some things I hang on to too much, and now it's the, the, the giant divestment over the next few years. You know, pretty I'll be 70 in two and a half years, and probably time to move to a somewhere where there's lower taxes and stuff, right. another state or something. And so got to get rid of all the extra gear. But I do have way, way too many pedals and stuff. Too much stuff. You know, they're like an artist's paints. You know, and some my wife's a, a fine arts painter, and she's got crazy amounts of paints and things like that. So right. I, can, I can look at it in those terms that uh, it's art supplies of a sort. But a lot of it's art supplies you can sell when you're done with it. So that's good. How many guitars, roughly? Too many. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> the number. It's called too many. Okay. Well, how about many. this then? We'll try. We'll try to get down. To, we'll try to get down to ten in a couple of years. That's the plan. What's the one that you're never getting rid of? The one electric or the one acoustic? I, one acoustic's easy. It's a. I mean, nobody's going to care about this here, but it's a. It's a. It's a Beardsall long scale guitar, Canadian Luther. Electric guitar. I'd probably keep the most practical one which is my Steve Klein uh, electric because it's the easiest to carry on an airplane. So okay. that's, that, that's easy. All right. Most practical, most practical and acoustics are not practical. So we just picked the best sounding one. Was uh, for the cover art for this, it's done by Kino. Was that someone you knew or did the label source? Yes, that this? was a really good friend of mine who I still know who owned a sushi bar in Oakland on Piedmont Avenue. And he was a very artsy guy and a very funny guy, and uh, he liked to do little paintings, and he said to me many times, why don't you let me do my, your CD cover? I want to do your CD cover. Okay. And so that was his, that let him do the CD cover. Okay. And he, you know, he listened to the track, and he painted that cover. I'm trying to interpret what this is. I see the devil and your goldfish. There's a, pre- there's a, pre- there's a pretzel because um, oh. the kid offers a pretzel. Right. There's the devil. <laughs> And there's some stuff about fish in it, and there's a guitar. Yeah. Gold. Yeah. That makes sense now with the pretzel. I was wondering what that was. It's a pretzel. I guess you wouldn't know. It's a a stick pretzel. Right. And it's interesting. Did Kino know that there were other shapes for pretzels? Who knows? I have no idea. Well, you have to get it down the drain, though, so. Yes. See, And there's the the counterclockwise uh, drain thing there, and there's the kind of dream space, and... That's a nice cover. Yeah, it is. What about the back cover? Did did he do that too, or is that something you saw ourselves? He did that too. He gave us that. He gave us that sex picture to put on the back cover. and said, I want this on the back cover. Wow. That's an original piece of art? 
Uh, no, that's something. Well, it's original of him sticking the fish over it. I think. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah. So I think he was being funny. Right. And, and you know the the iTunes version of Devil in the Drain adds quite a few extra tracks of things I wished I could put on it that I couldn't put on at the time. Yeah, there's almost all of your digital or a lot of your digital releases have bonus tracks. It seems. Well, I'll try to get you know the stuff that's never going to come out. That's one place to put it. For sure, yeah. Yeah. When's the last time you listened to this record, Devil in the Drain? I, I, you know, I thought about listening to it beforehand here, but I have not, so I have not listened to it for 20 years at least. Listen, Henry, your uh, discography here is just daunting. I don't know if this is a question you have an answer for, but what are some albums people who have never heard Henry Kaiser before, what should they check out? A World Out of Time, Henry Kaiser and David Lindley in Madagascar. Tell me about that. Uh, that David Lindley and I went to Madagascar for Shaunaki Records in 1991, and we made three albums with playing with people in Madagascar, but playing their roots music and trying not to, to corrupt it with our foreign influence. And we got a special publishing deal where they'd get 90% of the publishing, and the publishing company would only take 10%. Publishing companies usually take 50% and we took no money and we took no pay and it made it insane and that was one of the best-selling world music roots releases ever and it made an insane amount of money for those people over 20 years and continued we I just we just sent somebody just sent the head the publisher sent somebody a check for $5,000 still 30 years later that's great yeah it's great great we were you know we were pissed at um paul simon david burns of the world who were ripping off musicians with darker skin than theirs and uh registering publishing and tunes in in their own names that other people had written and we were trying to be good about that stuff right um but so what are the good i don't know i really like my the Deep Unreal, a recent solo record, is really good. Uh, Five Times Surprise on Caniform is really, really good. Whatever the record, what's the record with Morgan Agra and, and Trey Gunn called? You know, I'm on 350 records, so. <laughs> wow. Well, tell us about the one you did this year. You've already got a record out in 2020. I do. Which was? Oh, yeah. The, do you mean? Um, the Rune Gramophone. Oh, there's a new Rune Gramophone re- release called uh, In the Arctic Dreamtime, which is a soundtrack for a 1925 silent film by Roald Amundsen, great polar explorer about his failed attempt to reach the North Pole in two aircraft. And all you need to do is go on to Vimeo and search for uh, In the Arctic Dreamtime, or search for Arctic Dreamtime, one word, Dreamtime, and you'll find the whole movie with the music on it. If you can also... Uh, released last year uh, with Alvaro Domine, a really cool guitarist from Spain. We did the soundtrack to a uh, Mexican silent film, a railroad western called um, El Train Fantasma. And that soundtrack's on Vimeo too. With the, you can buy the CD, but you can also see the whole movie with the music for free there. So those are two good ways to go see stuff. Right on. Uh, and I had an album called More Requia, come out 
last year, which is uh, I'd already done a, an album in the spirit of John Fahey of doing Requiem for Dead People I cared about, called Requiem that was on uh, Guitar Requiem that was on the Zodic label. But I did a new one called More Requiem on the Metal Language label, which came out last year. That's a nice record. What about this year? You mentioned the the Mike Watt project. What else are you? What well, else are you so there's four on? things I have to get done in the next month here, <laughs> and I don't know how I'll ever get them done. Uh, there's a record with uh, an American cello player, Danielle de Grotula, and two Norwegians, a slide guitar player and a uh, hardinger fiddle player. That's probably destined for a Norwegian label. Working on that. And there's a quintet with me and four Bay Area women improvisers with Su Yeon Liu, who plays the Hagum, a Korean instrument, Daniel Di Grutola on cello, uh, Lisa Mesacapa on bass. There's so that there's an improvised record there. Right. And what else am I supposed to be mixing? There's a record with um, Andy West on bass, Lucas Legatti on drums, Stefan Thalen that I mentioned, and, and Chris Muir. And there's a duo record with the L.A. saxophone player Vinnie Golia. And I just noticed yesterday that Devin Townsend's tour ends in San Francisco on March 25th. And my friends Morgan Agron and Mike Keneally are in that band. And I sent them a message saying, shouldn't we be making a record since you're... You guys are there, right. and they were like, "Yeah, yes, we have to schedule that." They haven't scheduled our return flights yet, so I was got Michael Manring to sign on on bass for that. So we'll make some kind of record or something. But we just thought of it last night, so I don't know what that'll be. Well, that sounds great. You mentioned you're turning seventy this year. It doesn't sound like you're slowing down. Not not this year. Two yeah, two more years. Oh, I two got more two years. years. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so there's stuff to do, but there's not as many gigs as there used to be, and there's no not many record labels that'll put stuff out. Lucky that there are still some, but it's sad. A lot of people don't get to listen to music on very high-fidelity systems. They're listening on earbuds or things that sound terrible, and the kind of music I like to do has a lot of complex sounds and timbres and, and doesn't really get to express itself through that narrow an audio bandwidth. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's sad. Things change. They do. I like to think a lot of people that are listening to podcasts like ours, though, are still seeking out the, those digital formats, if they exist. Yeah I, you know? yeah, I think there's still some people there, yeah. yeah. But there's less than there used to be. For sure. And you can't walk into a record store and look on an end cap and say, crazy backwards alphabet, I wonder what that is. Well, I'll just take it home and find out, you know? And if you try to search around on YouTube or wherever you just get led to promoted things and you're never going to find out about the really cool things that are hiding between the cracks where those things hiding between the cracks um, used to get pushed out in front of you, both in record stores, but particularly by people who worked there and, um, and what they chose to put on end caps and what recommendations they chose to put up or the, when non-commercial radio had way more kinds of stuff than it does now. Well, the upside, I think, is, I mean, it might not be an upside for an artist that's trying to get paid, but uh, the streaming services make a lot of this stuff, especially the out-of-print stuff. Um, yeah, my point is the streaming services have too low a fidelity to yeah. really hear what music's really saying. Yeah, so that is you know, a problem. I, 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 I would rather they just didn't even listen to it because it's not going to get through. It's like you've got a novel and one out of every four words is, is blacked out. That's what it's like to listen to the music and streaming. Yeah. 
well, hopefully, you know, it'll come back around and some of the, yeah, the re- labels looking to reissue a lot of this, some of this stuff. I know, but nothing's protected and all the, and all the master tapes have degraded, so a lot of stuff's gone. I mean, I'm looking at all my master tapes. I have a huge shelf with probably 100 master tapes from all different albums and stuff, analog master tapes. There's no way to afford to transfer it and protect it properly. It's just going to get thrown away when I move. You know, I brought them here from the last house when I moved here eight or nine years ago, and I put them on a big shelf, and there they sit, degrading. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate and probably a, a problem we're just going to start seeing more and more as more of these tapes just get old for other yeah. artists as well. Yeah, and, yeah. and also digital, you know, some people back things up to digital audio tapes, to DAT tapes years ago. Right. Those are all those are all degrading. Some people back things up to CDs, CDRs, those are rotting and degrading. Oh, well, yeah. you'll even hear reissues coming out nowadays that were mastered off of vinyl because it's the only it's the only option for some of them or or you hear um vinyl reissues of things that are mastered off really bad sounding cds from the (laughs) early days of cd mastering when they did sound terrible but a cd can sound really good so uh i hate to see when people oh look i got the new lp of this and it sounded like that all the hendrix estate releases sound horrible yeah. compared to the original LPs. Just horrible. And they made them all from very low-quality CD masters because it's too much trouble to get the real tapes and do it right. Well, and that all has to get passed on to a consumer, and people are just not in the mindset to pay for this stuff. I mean, Neil Young I, you know, was trying to fix this with his uh, Pono or whatever it was called, but I don't yeah, think... Yeah, but there were already formats that were way better than Pono and cheaper. Yeah. So that was you know, some kind of a scam in a way, you know, Sony had the DSD um, and really good stuff that they could have put one little chip that cost 15 cents in CD players that would have, would have had amazing audio quality and the industry never went for it. You know, a lot of people are turning to vinyl now for what that's worth. Yeah, but a lot of that vinyl is mastered from really bad sounding CDs. Yeah, some of it Most is. Most of yeah. it. Yeah. Most of it. I, mem- I remember a horrible sad thing when I was at uh, when Conquer Jazz bought Fantasy Records yep. so they had the giant vaults they had the vault with tape vault with all the stacks masters all the blue note masters probably right? the Credence stuff um, just t- tons, tons of stuff yeah. and uh, they shipped it all out to be destroyed and there was a lot of it that wasn't transferred because Conquer said, we're never going to release anything that's not already on CD and we'll just use the CDs for the masters. Hey. And, you know, unreleased, tons of unreleased jazz, stacked stuff, wow. thrown away. Never protected. Yeah. And so thrown away. So, yeah, but that's how, that, I mean, I'm sure that's how, you know, civilization is, always. It, it, you know, a lot of things are perishable. Yeah, for sure. Transient. Henry, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate sure. it. My pleasure. I hope I wasn't too gloomy there. No, no, <laughs> it's end. something we've talked about for sure on the podcast before. So even a, a lot of this SST stuff is unavailable in any format, not even digitally. So people, never mind the quality, people cannot, can't hear it, period. Were the tapes all kept in one place at SST or some of them went back to artists or who knows? Yeah, we don't know. And some, I think the artists have some of them, maybe. I know I had tapes returned to me that they had, so I know I got all my masters back. Yeah. You know, for instance, those who know history are doomed to repeat it. 
a couple of the tracks are completely different takes oh, on wow. the LP and the CD. And so those LP, I have the tapes, but they'll then you know they're not going to get preserved. So so things do disappear. Yeah, we'll have to listen for that when we get to that one. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care, Henry. All right. Over and out. Yep. See ya. All right, man. Pretty impressive. Yeah, like I said, I, I couldn't even think of where to go, so I just started throwing names out at him. <laughs> what about <laughs> yeah. this guy? What about that guy? Like, oh yeah, I've done 32 albums with that guy. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I love that spiel at the end that Henry laid on you, though, about how like someone's just rolling into town and he's like, we probably need to record an album if you're in town. And they're like, <laughs> they're like, done. Yeah. That's so cool to have that type of network and to have all of those exceptional, talented people that you can just get together with and create with. Amazing. Well, here's the thing. We're not going to talk a lot about Henry's guitar playing on this episode because it's no. pre- it's predominantly not a guitar record. Yeah. Uh, but that's the instrument he is most well known for. And go on any YouTube video of Henry and you, you will find jackasses just kind of saying that he, you know what he does is just noise or whatever. And like, I don't know. I'm sure he's used to it by now, but it's just, look at who the the guy has played with. That says it all right there. A hack guitarist would never get, be given the opportunity to play with all those amazing musicians. People used to say that about the free jazz players when they started out though, right? Yeah. Like, it's just, people who need to have their mind expanded a bit more. And I'm not, I'm not trying to sound like, you know, I'm better than, better than them or more open-minded or something, but you do need to be of a certain headspace to accept that that is not just noise. Yeah. Hey Ryan, I'm going to hip you to the synclavier, which we know how to say now. At least that's how Henry pronounces it. The synclavier. Hey, wait, wait, is it synclavier or the synclavier? It's Synclavier. Stop trying to get street cred. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do uh, it. Okay, so it was an early digital synthesizer and a polyphonic digital sampling system and music works- workstation manufactured by New England Digital Corporation of Norwich, Vermont. It w- was produced in various forms from the late 70s into the early 90s and if you've never seen what a synclavier looks like, you should do a Google image search on it. It looks like something out of Star Trek. Like there's even a little computer monitor thing that looks like the thing Spock sticks his face into all the time. Oh yeah, all these old electronic instruments look crazy. Yeah. And he talks about Zappa in the interview, which I'm sure you were all over. Uh, Zappa later in his career uh, produced a number of albums using the synclavier, like uh, uh, Jazz from Hell, I think is probably his last studio album. And it's, I think it's all synclavier, at least the last one he released when he was alive. Neil Young used a couple, used, did a couple albums with the synclavier, uh, Reactor and Trans. Pete Townsend has used it. Uh, dire Straits used it a bunch. Whole, all whole bunch of bands, Depeche Mode, Sting. But predominantly, you know, not as a primary, you know, the centerpiece of an of a 
of an entire album, you know, more as like you would use a keyboard or synthesizer as a component of a song. Yeah, now you can make these types of sounds a lot more easily. Yeah. But the synclavier, or what do you, okay, hold on here. Synclavier? Synclavier. That's how Henry pronounces it. I don't know. I'm going to call it the synclavier. Anyways, you can produce this sound on a lot of modern keyboards way more easily. But if you listen to some of, like, some parts of this album, and if you listen to some of Zappa's heavy, heavy synclavier albums, I don't know if you could produce those sounds with a modern keyboard. There's something about the sequencers and how many layers you could get going on just one unit that is pretty impressive for like a late 70s unit. Should we start talking about the record? Sure, man. History Lesson Part 2 Okay, the most interesting thing that Henry said about this album, I thought, was the thing about it being mostly done as a soundtrack. Yeah. Some of it, or much of it, for a TV, uh, a TV show called Secrets and Mysteries, also known as Secrets of the Unknown. I searched that on YouTube, and uh, I've seen that show before, and I bet, I bet lots of people have. I think Henry kind of calls it a low-budget TV show, but I think it was probably in syndication because I for sure saw this show when I was younger. It was late 80s, early 90s, and uh, the host is Edward Mulher, a.k.a. the old dude from Knight Rider. It's like a documentary-style thing, but it's on like X-Files-type stuff, like Bigfoot, UFOs, Stonehenge, the Pyramids, King Tut's Tomb, Hitler's Occult Connections, that kind of stuff. So when you're listening to this record, you should picture those things maybe going on. Like that's what Henry's composing for. Wild, man. Wild. Now all I want to do is watch Knight Rider. Yeah. This uh, came out on LPCD cassette, and also it's been released digitally, which we talk about in the, the uh, episode. Okay, so track one is Shugaki for Conlon. This is the track we talked about on the No Age episode. For me, considering the era that this was recorded, the drum, bass, and horn sounds are fairly realistic, I thought. The interesting thing I kept thinking about when I was listening to this album is that all it really says is it was recorded direct to two-track. Uh, but this one, I hear Henry doing like his his thing on guitar, like as an overdub. But he may, he may have been able to do one entire track exclusively on the Synclavier. That's... Yeah. That's kind of what I thought that maybe meant. Yeah. yeah, you can you can program that thing, you know, it'll take a week to program it, but then you put you drop it down onto one track and you can do some guitar over top of that. Yeah, that's kind of what I assumed. Uh, track two, King of the Wild Frontier. This one's a real weird, cool track. Uh, the opening and ending parts make way more sense when you consider that this was soundtrack work. Uh, the middle section is Davy Crockett, hence the title of the song King of the Wild Frontier. It's that it's that Davy Crockett melody. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Track three, Dark Memory number four. I would really like to hear the first three Dark Memories. <laughs> yeah. More guitar on this one, uh, an upright bass sound, pretty realistic one. Kind of a jazzy tune. I just kept 
thinking when I was listening to this, like, what the hell was he soundtracking? Because <laughs> it's the music's pretty insane. And this one has his kind of trademark whammy bar, really wild guitar playing on it that I just love. This was the first track that kind of, I mean, obviously the Sugagaki for Conlon we had heard before, but this is the one that stuck out for me on side one, I guess. Yeah. Track four, Smokestack Lightning. I just wrote Lightning Hopkins, Henry Kaiser style. I'm assuming that's the... Nope. Nope. Howlin' Wolf. Ah, right. Yeah. I knew that actually. I just, I think I wrote it wrong or something. This one, you can really hear the Derek Bailey influence. I don't know if you've ever checked him out, Ryan. I did for the first time this week. You can definitely hear the influence on Henry. Henry's guitar playing straight away as soon as you check out Derek Bailey. Okay. I, I got to tell you, though, like, I listened to it a couple of times. Uh, let So you should know, like, I hadn't ever really listened to this record until this week, to be completely honest. Like, I had heard, you know, the, the comp track and a bit of this before. And you'd think I would have, less, you know, maybe checked it out or sought it out because of the Frank and Sinclair connection. But it took a couple of listens and then finally reading the tracks to go, oh my God, that's Smokestack Lightning. Yeah, it's, uh, I haven't really listened to it either before this week, so. Okay, track five, five, Roadside Picnic. Things start off kind of idyllic, I guess, during the picnic, but then they take a menacing turn. This really cool pulsating rhythm comes up and it kind of crests with some great tension and then some cool, cool guitar playing from Steve Anderson of MX80 Sound. If people don't know who they are, they were an art rock new wave punk band from Bloomington, Indiana, who re- relocated to San Francisco in 1978. Big time influence on post-punk and noise rock bands such as Swan, Sonic Youth, Shellac. Still active today as far as I know. Uh, still with Bruce Anderson as the guitarist and kind of the chief architect of the band, I believe. This one I really liked, Roadside Picnic. And then we flip it over and we go to the B-side, Free to Choose. This is the one Henry mentions in the uh, interview as one of his favorites. He says it's still being used in documentaries today. Sounded to me like an alarm clock setting on my iPhone, this one. It's got that marimba sound. Track two, Lost Horizon, and then in brackets, solo guitar. This has kind of got Henry's signature guitar sound, like it, kind of his thing that he, that he does on guitar, if there is such a thing. I'm sure a lot of people would say that this is just noise, but, I mean, let's see you do it. It's not that easy to, to recreate stuff like this, I would say. No, what people don't understand with a lot of stuff that can, you know, this doesn't go for everyone, but it, I'm sure it goes for Henry. Like, in order to make stuff that sounds like noise to people, there is a ton of theory and technique that underlies all of that. Yeah, for sure. You know, you have to be so good that you can make this sound, right? Yeah. Okay, and then we go into the title track, Devil in the Drain. This is the one that he talks about in the interview, lyrical text from a book written by Daniel Pinkwater, which I... I found a, a little spiel on it's just it's described as a boy discovers the devil in a kitchen drain and fearlessly deals with him which I think pretty much sums up this I think it's like a nine minute track yeah 
it doesn't surprise me at all when I'm thinking of like this record, Zappa as well, in kind of the same thought process. And when I look at Daniel Pinkwater, like the names of some of his books, like Lizard Music, The Snark Out Boys, <laughs> the, the Avocado of Death. Oh, yeah. Um, the Big Orange Splot. Yes. These are the these are like, you know, crazy backwards alphabet, uh, Zoog's Rift, Zappa type of names. And th- they all just kind of fit with um, this type of, you know, very esoteric artistic craziness. Yeah. This is the one he talks about in the interview uh, that Mark Hosler from uh, Negative Land helped him out with. To be honest with you, whenever I heard it, I kind of just wanted to go listen to that Zappa song, Titties and Beer. (laughs) (laughs) That's the quote of the episode right there. (laughs) Okay, and then the final track, If This Goes On. Uh, This is just three minutes of kind of guitar weirdness. Just a little closer, I guess. And then if if you want to listen to it digitally, there's eight bonus tracks. Uh, including one called Blue SST for Greg Ginn, which I thought was an interesting track title. Uh, Even though I have this on vinyl, I did listen to the digital version all week. Sorry, Henry. And those tracks are are worth a listen for sure. Yeah, this song, If This Goes On, was a highlight for me personally. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know what it is, but I mean, it, it, um, it actually reminded me a lot of some of this type of these types of compositions that Zappa made that I really like as well. And, uh, it stuck out and and I don't know, it it kind of was a nice little resolution, I guess, after the devil in the drain spiel for me as a listener. That's cool. I don't think we have to get too into the cover art. We kind of go over it in the interview, but it is cool. There's the pretzel. Yep. I didn't know what that was until he told me. Back cover's cool too. Interesting story about how uh, he sourced this artwork in the interview. Yeah. Little spiel about Daniel Pinkwater on the back here. Uh, Recorded January, February 1987, mastered by Phil Brown, engineered and produced by Henry Kaiser. Ballot result? Let's do it. Ballot result. Uh, What's your favorite? If this goes on, probably, hey? Yeah, I, I that one really kind of stuck with me. I actually, when I when the record was over, I would kind of go back to that one and listen. I listened to it a few times in a row. I really dug it. My pick was Roadside Picnic, but we can go with If This Goes On. I, I like to I'm think sure. of Henry as a guitar player. So, yeah, I suppose. I mean, if you want, if when people are listening to this comp tape, this would be more representative of more of his catalog i suppose so i'll go with that here's the thing about this record for me i don't love this record but i and i i don't love everything henry's done but i've heard i don't know a quarter of what he's done maybe and there is some killer stuff in there and i have a ton of respect for henry kaiser as an artist so i'm really looking forward to getting to more of his stuff might not revisit this one i might actually i mean (sighs) You know, I hadn't really listened to it until this week. 
I, as I said, like I was surprised I hadn't. I probably should have listened to this one when because I, I got really deep into the Sinclair Zappa stuff for like a month once, and <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and this this should have popped up in my discovery phase at that time. Um, so there there are some sounds on this that are really reminiscent of some recordings that i i really like so i might come back to this one i'm shocked to hear you say you've you've dug that deep into kaiser you know what i would love is next episode if you could even just give me like something to pursue henry kaiser wise and and i'm gonna i'm gonna go deep you should check out those yo miles things that he does yeah yeah what's that guy's name wada leo do you mean the the ones with Wadada Leo Smith? Yeah, that's the stuff, man. Check that out. If you like Electric Miles, you'll like that. Okay. I think okay. it's kind of, it's kind of like a a tribute to Electric Miles. Oh, it definitely yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've never really I I knew about it. I've never checked it out, but that's a good reminder. I'm in. Have you checked out that five time surprise? No. No, I, you've mentioned it a ton of times already and I just have not gotten to it. You'll love that, man. That is top priority. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe after I'm done obsessing over the obsessed. That's right. Yeah. And then you'll be, your next spiel will be, I'm, I've been five times surprised. No, no. my, my, no. Are you kidding? <laughs> my, my, my spiel puns are way better than that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, it's SST 119. The St. Vitus 12-inch EP, Thirsty and Miserable. And, yes. Brent, we've got a special guest. Yes, Dave Chandler's on the podcast. Nice. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.